So some of you haven't been with us in a little while, so it's good to see some familiar faces return. Uh, We are in the book of James still, and uh, we're in chapter 5 this morning. So uh, if you want to find it in your Bibles, it's between Hebrews and the Peters. And uh, so it's going to be right in there. We'll look at chapter uh, 5 this morning. And give me just a moment. I uploaded the wrong sermon. But, here we go. What's that? Wing it, that's right. All right, here it is. So here, here's, we, uh, we're in this section. We just talked about this idea of wealth, right? So um, I'm going to ask, ask a question. I don't want you to audibly answer it. I don't need you to raise your hand. But if I were to ask you this question, do you feel rich or are you rich? Internally, how do you think you would answer that question? Right. So that's what I want you to kind of think about. So there was an individual who did some research and there's actually if you go online, there's there's these calculators because apparently somebody has a lot of time on their hands. There are these calculators that people have and you can go into and you can actually see how rich you are in comparison to the rest of the world, because apparently that's something people need to know. So if you make sixty thousand dollars a year. You are considered richer and, and you're in the upper 0.2%, and this is a 2018 study, the upper 2.0, uh, 0.2% of all wealth in the entire world. If you make $50,000 per year, you're in the upper 0.3%. If you make $40,000, you are on the upper 0.6%. Suppose we drop that figure all the way down to $20,000 a year, you're still in the upper 4% of wealth in the entire world. And that means you make more than 96% of everybody in the world. So let's go down to 10,000 a year. That puts you in the upper 16%. Again, 84% more than the world. The average American household makes about $65,000 a year. And, of course, that's going to vary depending on where you're located, depending on your, your, your regional location, et cetera, and by population group. But we can use that at least as kind of a nice starting point, couldn't we? So there it means that if that's the case, and if you live in the United States and your medium income is $65,000 a year, you're in the upper 1% of wealth in the entire world. All that to right, it's, it's, it's something that's crazy, right? So that's all to say that if you live in America, more than less, more, more, time, more than likely, you're considered rich. And I'm sure most of us don't feel rich. Most of us will not look at ourselves and say, I'm a rich guy. That's just not something that we would generally do. And think about it when you're filing your taxes or you're paying off a, an income or something like that. You, you probably don't see it even mostly at that point. But in absolute terms, we're rich. Let's put it another way. Said here, if you have a, a cell phone, if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have a closet full of clothes, you're considered rich. It's pretty interesting. Fascinating stuff, in my opinion. So this passage, again, like I told the kids, we're going to talk about this very thing. And and, and James is going to address the rich. So whether we like to admit it or not, he is talking to me. When I read this last week, first thing I said is, oof, Lisa's not talking to me. But he is. He is talking to us. But we'll we'll see how that kind of plays out here in just a minute. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, if you don't mind following along, the, the passage will be on the screen behind me as well. Come now, you rich, 
Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. For your riches have rotted and your garments have moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up your treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who moved your, uh, mowed your fields, which you, left, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I forgot to tell you, this is not going to be a sermon about butterflies and sunshine, if you hadn't seen that yet. Okay, so last week we briefly addressed on this possibility that in our prior passage, that James was using, uh, or, or using that text as kind of an illustration. He was using that text as sort of a, like an illustration to this warning against worldliness that we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. So I would argue, and I think it's fair to make the same assessment with this passage, And there's a few reasons for that, but one of them is that phrase at the very beginning of this passage that was used at the very beginning of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and that's this phrase, come now. So he uses this phrase, come now, in last week's passage as well as today. But there's another reason I say that too, and I I think it's because of who who James was writing to. So if we go way back to chapter 1, verse 1, we'll see that, that James is talking to a specific audience. Verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, James, a servant of God and and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. So he identifies, as we saw several weeks back when we open up this section or this book, we see who he is writing to. In the very next verse, he addresses the brothers or brethren. Some of your translations might read brothers and sisters. And then later in the letter, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he does the same. Chapter 2, verse 1, he does the same. Chapter 2, verse 14, he does the same. Chapter 3, verse 1, and so forth. He continues to address the brothers, the brethren. But what's interesting here, and what seemingly James has been doing, is any, when he opens up a new section, he kind of readdresses and identifies who he's writing to. And that audience, of course, is the brothers. So in other words, I think this letter is written to the Christians of this day, of his day. So when we get to the passage last week and we get to this one here, you'll see that he doesn't do that. In fact, verse chapter 4, verse 11, he addresses the brothers. And then when we get to our passage next week, chapter 5, verse 7, he'll address the brothers again. So he doesn't address the brothers in this section that we looked at last week and this week. Kind of bookends it with brothers. So what does this mean, right? So it could mean a couple of things. I think, one, it could mean that James is addressing a very well-known issue, a social issue that's occurring in that city, in that town, around that church, and during the time of James. The other possibility, which is kind of what I looked at last week, is that there might be him just using this as kind of an illustration, right? An illustration to help us to understand and help the readers to understand what he was talking about with worldliness back in chapter 4, I think it's also noteworthy to kind of think about what he's been talking about. So back in James chapter 2, there seems to be this issue with money with, from these Christians because he addressed the brothers in chapter 2 in that opening section. He, and there seems to be some sort of propensity that these Christians dealt with in their love for money and, and this idea that they were, um, they were actually favoring wealth or wealthy people. So there seems to be some sort of connection there. Uh, John MacArthur, a very well-known pastor in California, says that he might be even addressing those who are playing church. 
right? So uh, something that you may not know, and I'm kind of teasing when I say that, but there are non-Christians who go to church on a regular basis, and he might be addressing non-Christians just as much. So I think we've seen in this letter so far from James is he's what he's been trying to do is allowing the reader to understand what true faith is and how that's carried out in the life of a Christian. So when we open this series, we, we noted that, you know, James didn't talk a lot about doctrine and he doesn't talk about doctrine a lot in this letter. But what he does do is he says that instead of focusing on that doctrine, he's focusing on how that doctrine should impact our lives and how that doctrine should impact how we live out our lives on a daily basis. And that's why we've called this sermon series Faith Works. That's why we've called it that, because what we've been trying to do is we've been focusing on how our faith ought to impact how we live our daily lives and how we can work that out. So regardless of how these two sections were written and who they were written to, um, there are a lot that we can kind of get from it, and that's what we'll talk about this morning. So there is a lesson for us. So let's kind of review what that lesson is. We'll, we'll jump right into our main idea. The main idea is this. The Lord will judge the rich in eternity for how they handle their temporary wealth. The Lord will judge the rich in eternity for how they handle their temporary wealth. So I want to kind of quickly just touch on what the passage is not exactly saying. He's not saying that it's bad to be rich. He's not saying it's, it's, it's bad to be rich. I kind of worded it funny on your, on your worksheets there. Okay, it's not bad to be rich. That's not what James is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Proverbs 10.22 tells us that it's a blessing from the Lord. It says the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So if you have riches, if you have wealth, if you're comfortable, if, if you're not worried about your, your, your income, that's a blessing from God, and we've seen that all throughout this letter. So James is speaking to what these rich folk are doing with that wealth. So what were the rich doing? Verses 2 and 3 tell us that they were hoarding their wealth. They were hoarding their wealth. They were literally just putting it in their pocket and letting it burn in their pocket. They didn't do anything with that wealth. They were hoarding it. The Net Bible translation says at the end of verse 3 that they could be rendered that they hoarded up the treasure for the last days. They just let it sit there, and they weren't doing anything with it. And we see that they hoarded their riches, their garments, and their gold and silver. That's how it's translated in our, in our translation that we're using. So the riches here, they, they refer to all of their possessions, everything that they had. And some even say that it actually refers specifically to, like, grain, which, if you think about it, he says it's rotting, so this grain can literally rot. But these garments um, were, were overflowing closets full of clothes, right? You walk in there, I don't know what to wear today because you have 1,500 outfits to choose from. There's actually this neat life hack out there. I'm sure some of you have seen it. But you, at the beginning of the year or beginning of a period of time, you, you, you change your, your hanger and you put it the opposite way that you normally would. And then they say you set this, this kind of this thing at the, you know, six months, one year, whatever it might be. So you wear that, that garment, you put it on, you put it back in the closet the opposite direction. So by the end of that set period, if there's like 10, 10 items of clothing that's facing the other way, you know that you haven't worn those. They're not really something that you need to hold on to. So you can gather those up and you can donate them, sell them, whatever you want to do. So that's a neat little hack that kind of shows you. And here's, here's the reality of it. That's a first-world problem, isn't it? It's a first-world problem, right? It, it means that we have so much that we can just let clothing sit. In James's day, the poor Christians, they probably only had what was on their back. 
They only had what was on their back. So regarding this idea of gold and silver, this illustration that James is using is is kind of odd because technically speaking, gold and silver, that doesn't corrode. It doesn't corrode. It, its statement is paradoxical. It, it's emphasizing that these, even these incorruptible items, even these incorruptible items that cannot physically corrode these commodities, they're destined to perish. That's what James is saying. He's not saying it's literally happening, but they're destined to perish, even these incorruptible items that we hold on to. So obviously this statement, it, it, what it's doing, it's illustrating utter worthlessness, it's illustrating worthlessness because it's a temporary thing. So how does, uh, in what way does hoarding, if you think about it, what, what does hoarding do for others? How does that benefit others? Even within your own household, what does that do? And how does that benefit others? Next thing we see here is in verse 4 is that they were holding back wages. Verse 4 says they were holding back wages. And if you think about it, there's another kind of connection possibly to the last passage because he was talking to businessmen who went out there and, and, and sold. But then if you think about it too, as Jews, they probably were very familiar with what the law said about this specific issue. Deuteronomy 24 tells us this. He says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it. So lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. I can't imagine James didn't have this passage in mind when he wrote that verse. It's almost identical because we see that the workers cried out to God. But it says here that they need to pay the wages on the same day. So these rich people that James is talking to, they were holding back these wages. In fact, the other day I heard someone said that, that they, they had to, their business had to cut ties with another business. Because they found out and they bragged about it that this other business, they were literally hiring illegal immigrants to do the work for them, and then they weren't paying them. They weren't paying them for the work that they did. And then if they complained about it, they threatened them. I'm going to call the immigration department. I'm going to call the authorities. They're going to take you away. That's wrong on so many levels. People are people. We need to love one another, the Bible says. So holding back wages from those who earned it, who does that benefit? It only benefits the holder of the money, of the wealth. And that leads to this this next point that we see in verse 5. They lived selfishly. They lived selfishly. A few chapters ago, back to chapter 2, we we see these words in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you say to uh, one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and be filled," without giving them the things that they need, and that's needed for the body. What good is that? So James has already addressed this. What good is it for you to say, "Hey, good luck. I'll pray for you," but you don't take action on what their possible needs might be? And that was an expectation, if you think about it, during that time, because that was the cultural norm. That was what they expected to do. That was what the law told them to do. This is what their relationship should have been as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to love and take care of one another. But they failed to do so. And and back in chapter 2, James told them that they were being partial, and they were showing partiality, which we talked about in great detail. 
And this shows that there were both rich and poor within this community of believers, just like probably any church community that you would go to. And this verse also kind of gives this idea and understanding that that they they were kind of showing off their wealth. These people were showing their wealth off. Dave Ramsey, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, he actually said that most millionaires, they drive like a four four or five-year-old car that's completely paid off. You know, a lot of them, those who are are humble, those who who treat people fairly and, 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 and do the right thing with their money, they're not showing it off with these fancy cars. So James is not addressing those folks. He's addressing those celebrities who have 15 cars in their garage, you know, different colors, one for each day of the week, and then a couple for extra. He's not, he's addressing those folks who are showing off their money, these rappers who are literally singing about their money and, and treating others like they're worth nothing at all. And of course, there's good, wealthy people out there, and, and we saw that already. Finally, James says that they, they judge them unfairly. This passage is interesting. When you look at this passage, it's actually kind of a legal term. So somehow, they, because they were influenced and they, were, they held a certain position within the community, they actually were able to influence, kind of like we see today, they were able to influence the legal system and, and, and those folks who were able to judge them and able to, to take, you know, take them to court. So they, they, were, they were taking advantage of them, even on a legal standpoint. So they were doing everything they could to, to treat them like dirt instead of holding them up and taking care of them. And, and the righteous that James is speaking about here in this verse as well, we're looking at verse 6. James is speaking of this worker who was not paid and who was essentially being oppressed because they were poor and because they were lower than them. There are some who actually believe that James is speaking of Jesus in this passage and in this verse, but if you look at the context, it doesn't really seem to work in that particular case. And, and when he talks about not being able to resist, it's my understanding that this, he was, they were not able to resist because they didn't have the voice. They weren't given a voice. They weren't given uh, any power. They had no power. They had no influence, so they just took it. There was nothing that they could do. They were powerless, so they did not even resist because they couldn't fight. So because of that, we see that there's actually two truths that we can pull from this passage about our wealth. First thing we see here, broadly speaking, is that our mishandling of our wealth, it's going to catch up. The mishandling of our wealth will catch up to us. And we see that James spends this entire section on this imminent judgment that's going to come down to these people. And it awaits this type of person that he's addressing. And we see that judgment way back in verse 1 where he, uh, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, that might sound somewhat familiar because we saw that a couple chapters ago, but the, the, his reference when, when he spoke to the sinners and worldliness about weeping and mourning for their sin, that was a call to repentance. This is not. This is a call of judgment. And there are several witnesses, which is interesting. When you look at this passage, there's actually several witnesses that come forward and they, they bring these individuals to light. The first one are the riches themselves because they will fade away and they are corroded and they're no longer worth anything. They cry out. But then it says that the workers cry out to God. The workers will cry out to God. And we'll see here in a few minutes what God's going to do about that. And the next thing we see here is, like we talked about with the kids, it's all going to go away. It's a temporary enjoyment that we have. 
Consider what the psalmist says in Psalm 49. He says, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not go down after him. It's all going to go away. We've all seen it. That, you know, you're not going to see a U-Haul fall on a hearse. You just won't see it. You shouldn't anyway. We've seen this passage, and we saw that last week as well. Uh, an author named Herbert Carson said it this way. He says, death is the final mockery of materialism. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing of it out. If a man has lived to accumulate good, how indescribably tragic his dying. Because that stays where it is. And we said this earlier, and this is why we said it earlier, that the, the Lord's going to judge the rich in eternity for how they handle that temporary wealth that they have. So this passage, again, I, I warned you kind of late, I suppose, that it, it's not about sunshine and butterflies. But there are some things that we can do here. There is some encouragement that we can pull from this passage. Um, and so I want to kind of talk through quickly as we close our time, how do we apply this message today? How do we, how do we apply it to us or, or ourselves? first thing I would consider is this, consider how you spend your resources. We ought to consider how we're spending those resources. And I use resources specifically because we, as we've been talking about monetary wealth and monetary funding, it also can be other gifts and other resources that we have, like our time, like our talents and our abilities that we have. How are we using what God's gifted us with? maybe for, for others and building each other up. So I want to say, ask the following, am I honoring God with those resources? Am I honoring God with those resources? Am I building up others with those resources? Am I wasting away? Am I wasting those resources? Are they just sitting there and rotting away? Next thing here is I would say you consider what your possessions are really worth to you. We need to consider what they're really worth to us. How tightly are we going to hold on to those possessions? For me, it was hard not to think about the, the story of the rich young man from Matthew chapter 19. If you're not familiar with the story, it goes a little bit like this. A young man approached Jesus, and he's, he's thought to be a very uh, important individual, somebody with a lot of power and stature, and he asked Jesus, how can I go to heaven? How can I gain eternal life? And it was a strange response, in my opinion, from Jesus, because Jesus says, you, you go back home, you sell all your possessions, you give it to the poor, and you come back and follow me. He told him to, to do something. Actually, I apologize. He first tells him and asks him, like, hey, well, you've got to follow all the commandments. You've got to follow all the commandments. He's like, oh, well, I do. Oh, you do this and this? Absolutely. He's like, okay, then. then go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. So this is how Jesus responded. Jesus said to his disciples, because this man, unfortunately, what he did is, do you think he didn't do that? He literally turned around and he walked away sorrowful because of all that he had, the scripture tells us. So Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because this, this rich young man, this young man could not give up his possessions to follow the Lord. So here's a hard question for you. Would you give it all up to follow the Lord? And because of that, we have to ask, are those possessions more important to us than eternity with the Father? 
And then the next thing here that we see is we need to consider how we treat others. We need to consider how we treat others. Well, I don't believe that anybody in this room is, is like the man who withheld wages. I don't believe that anybody in this room has, has treated these people poorly. I think it's always important, however, that we do still and, you know, examine ourselves and how we are treating other people. One of my favorite passages in, in the scriptures is, is Romans chapter 12. Paul spends a lot of time in that letter talking about doctrine and, and heavy, heavy uh, information for us. But what he does is he kind of shifts his attention to practical living. And we see a lot of that starting in, in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. So I'm going to just kind of share a few things that he did in that, uh, in that book. Verse 10 says that we are to love one another with brotherly affection. And we are to outdo one another in showing honor. A friendly competition to, to do as much as you can for your brother. Verse 16, Paul says that we live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. He's telling there needs to be that unity. And then verse 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Those are just a few verses here. So I told you there'll be some additional encouragement, and there will be. And this is what it comes from. It takes a look. Uh, it, it comes from verse 4, but it says here that this, this encouragement is this. Remember that the Lord will judge the wicked. Remember that the Lord will judge the wicked. Verse 4 says it this way. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have been kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. There's the encouragement. The Lord of hosts, this idea of the Lord of hosts means that that the Lord is this leader. And he's the one who's directing and guiding and commanding this army of angels. He's directing this army of angels. That's what that idea of, of the host, he's leading these hosts against an enemy. He's leading a host against an enemy. And what that tells us, that that means he's fighting for us. He's fighting for us because the enemy of us is the enemy of God if we are following him. And then James, in this powerful image, what he's doing is he's telling the oppressed here, don't worry, God's going to fight for you. The Lord of hosts will fight for you. He's going to bring his army down and he's going to fight for you. And he himself has heard your cries. He himself has heard your cries. And it's a strong warning against those who stand up against his people. And that's what James is doing. He's saying it. Don't worry. The Lord will take care of this for you. And this means that that is even a temporary situation. For those who are being oppressed, that's temporary in the kingdom of God. It's temporary. And again, I think it's important to reiterate the fact that, hey, evil... Or, or money is not evil. We know that we've seen that money is not evil. So I want to kind of quickly take you to a passage from Paul in First Timothy chapter six, uh, and he warns about this in, with respects to those who treat others with evil intent because of that wealth. Chapter six, verse ten, uh, Paul says to Timothy, "For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs." Hope you saw that. It's the root. It isn't the it isn't evil. 
It's not the money itself is not evil. It's the root because if I'm focusing all of my attention there, that's what makes the evil intent occur. It's about how we see it and how we treat it and how we bless others with it. Later, Paul says it like this way to the rich. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That's what Paul encourages us to do. And again, I said earlier, and we, we shared some, some statistics of, of, of how worldly we are technically considered rich. And in comparison to the rest of the world, consider what we have, we are considered rich. And I know, I know, I know, I know, most of us probably don't feel that way. But I want you to, to, to leave here today, and I want to encourage you that as you do, Ask yourself how you can honor God with those riches. Ask yourself how you can honor God with those riches. Ask how you can serve others with your possessions. Ask God and ask yourself how you view your riches in light of eternity. Ask God to give you a loving heart for your brothers and sisters. So I ask you if you will do that today. Let's pray. Father, this is an interesting passage, and I know that uh, most of us here today don't consider ourselves to be rich, but we can see this passage and understand what it's talking about, and and help us to see that clearly, help us to see that, that our responsibility with what you possess or what you have given us to possess, it's not about us, but it's about how we can use that to, to bless others. And I can attest, God, that as I look out in this room, uh, and I've dealt with so many people in, in this room and, and those who aren't even here, I, can, I know there's so many people that are so generous here. But there are, might be all the others, too, that, that might need help, who are feeling oppressed, who are, are struggling. So help us to identify who those individuals are, help them reach out so we can, as a, as a body of believers who love you, Help us to serve others with what we have as well. So speak to us today, God. Encourage us today as we consider this, this section of Scripture and how we, can, how we can bless others with what you have provided for us. Help us to, to see and to question things and to understand how we can do that better. And we ask that in Jesus' name.